0: The world's most exciting podcast, The Savage Nation, home of borders, language, culture. Here he is, Michael Savage. One of the best ways for you to get to know me is through my stories, my famous stories. So you've got a real treat today. We're playing a collection of my family stories today. So sit back and relax and enjoy this collection of my personal stories. Savage. Michael Savage, a host like no other. Middle East on the brink, North Korea on the brink. wait i saw, i thought i told him about herbie the Jlub. there's nothing to tell he was a sad sack worked in the coffee shop at shanks that's right but he, oh he had a mannerism of talking he was a pudgy guy worked in the coffee shop but when you're a young kid who's a a lonely bus boy even a guy who has a job in a coffee shop You start to think he's somebody. It's like when you're seven years old and you go to the movies alone and an usher had like a uniform on. You actually thought he was an officer of the law. Remember those days? When you're seven and a guy in the movie theater has a uniform on with eight Paulettes, you assume he's Napoleon's grandson and you listen to him. Today they take him and throw him in a dumpster. You don't listen to people in movies today. Don't listen to anybody. Oh, what fun we used to have throwing good and plenty at the screen on a Saturday. Who went for the movie? We threw popcorn up in the air just to see the technicolor, hit the popcorn. Oh, I had a miserable rat for a friend. Lives in Scarsdale, married a lawyer, hasn't worked in 20 years, the bum. Got white hair, thought he looked like Hemingway, really looked like an old man from the garment center who failed. But in his mind, he thought he was Hemingway, that type. You know the type? He thought he had a Hemingway-esque-like look, that type always dressed Natalie. But people looked at him, they thought he was a busted-out suitcase from the garment center, From day one, he's the one whose mother used to beat herself over the hands with a chain. And then when the father came home, she'd say, Sam, Sam, look what Johnny did to me. Look what your son. And the father and the son fought. That family, I don't blame the kid. The, The family was nuts, but she was nuts because she went to a doctor in New Jersey to get Benzedrine shots in those days now, Hamburger Express and Pink Cadillac and all, in order to lose weight. So she came back like a speed addict, nuts. Everything was crazy. Took it all out on her growing, developing, crazy son. Uh, but we were good friends in those days. I'm just saying later on, a guy bump, bump, busted out at Fort dicks, was always a loser on the on the streets of the Garment Center. And then he married a lawyer, moved to Scarsdale, and walked around with the white beard on Grand Central State. And he thought everyone thought he was Hemingway, but in fact, he just looked like a guy from the Garment Center who was going to a 25-cent porno store, really, with a paper bag and a raincoat but in his mind he thought he was distinguished coming out of the porno shop if you know what I'm talking about but the reason I'm mentioning him is because I lost the entire story about Herbie so I thought I'd twist it to him here's one of my favorite stories about my very tough two-fingered geometry teacher who allegedly lost his fingers well listen and find out I had a geometry teacher in high school he had two fingers on his right hand he was a tough guy he was an Irishman and real tough but a very good teacher, and the kind of teacher who made you come up to the blackboard and perform at the blackboard, and if you didn't, he ridiculed you. He didn't curse you out, but he called you a dummy, basically. He says, now what's the matter with you today, Michael? Is your brain not functioning? That kind of thing. And believe me, you didn't want to wind up in front of that class not knowing your stuff because you didn't want to be humiliated in front of your peers. But in those days it was very clear if you were smart you were smart if you were stupid you were dumb and that was the end of it and no one changed anything so he had a left hand with five fingers and a right hand with two fingers and the two fingers were stubs but he could still put chalk on a board and when he said to you the midterm exams are back he would read out every name and every score publicly now why do you think he did it because he understood that by doing well you were proud of yourself and the kids looked up to you and by doing poorly you were ashamed of yourself boys and girls and you try to do better but because the liberal perverts took over the schools where they try to put perversion ahead of everything else they have now taken dummies and try to make that better than the smarties and consequently, the schools can't even teach Johnny how to add or read. And if Johnny's smart enough and he can't focus at all, they put him on Ritalin to dope him up and turn him into a sissy and a dumbbell who can't do anything except sit in a cubicle the rest of his life and possibly jump off a building when he's 25. Now, how Mr. W. lost his fingers is another interesting story. We all knew about it very fast. I forget his full name. It was Mr. W. And they it was whispered in the halls of the high school that he lost his fingers, and I'm not glorifying it, planting a bomb for the IRA. Now, I don't know whether it was true, but it was certainly enough to make us understand not to mess around with this teacher. And we didn't, we respected him. Whether it was true or not is irrelevant. That's who we had for teachers in those days. The story I'm gonna tell you occurred when I was a young man, first a kid and then a young man. And it was about a man who grew up as my father's, one of my father's best friends in a very poor neighborhood in New York City, they were immigrants together. Their parents came over. They came over, I think, maybe on the same boat, or they met each other in the slums of New York. And they, they both had a very tough life, and they worked their way up, little by little, little by little, as the immigrants have to do and as they struggle in a society. And this man went into a business that took off at a certain point, like a rocket. He hit a fad in a certain business, and he started to make a great deal of money, and he moved way beyond our family while we lived in an attached house in Queens, New York, an attached brick house, he had the money to move his family to a detached house. <laughs> Remember how important that distinction was in those days, is like the Buick LeSabre as opposed to the Buick Roadmaster. Or well, God forbid, you a Rockefeller, you bought an old, a Cadillac. If you can imagine, that's how people used to grade themselves in those days by their you know their status, cars and houses. I don't suppose it's much different today. It just isn't as easy to figure out in some regard, not on the road anyway. Anyway, so he moved to this uh, detached house in in Roslyn, New York. And it was a beautiful house. It had its own garden all around it. We only had a little strip of grass in the backyard, a little teeny one in the front. And um, the carpet was wall to wall and it was pink. And he was a big cigar smoker. And we go over and visit. And I had a very good time. He would gloat, you know, with the cigar and lord it over my father. And we'd leave. My father never said anything against him. But, you know, I could see in his eyes that he was in his, you know, he was a little, let's say, you know, let's say lost that little battle at that time. You know how men are. I mean, men are competitive. Even if they love their friend, if their friend does better than them, there's a degree of envy in every human being. It's just one of the cardinal sins. As years went on, the man's business continued to to, uh, thrive. And then I left home. I moved away from New York City, I went and did my thing collecting plants, working for my graduate degrees. Thousands of miles away, I was living 6,000 miles away, then 9,000 miles away in the Fiji Islands. And lo and behold, on one of my trips back to New York when I was already a father myself, I had heard that this man's business had collapsed entirely. The fad that he had rode like a wave had died. Women were no longer buying that particular product. And the man who had a chain of successful wholesale stores lost everything. He lost everything and it was so fast that he wound up living where he started on the Lower East Side of New York in a poor relative's apartment with his wife and the uh, relative's family, back where he started in a one-room apartment. And that's where I come in. I come back from one of my trips to the Fiji Islands. I'm a young man in my, I don't know how old I must have been. I, I don't remember, 25, 30. I don't remember what what age I was already anymore. And there he was sitting in my father's house. And I loved this man. I loved him like, a, like, you know, another father. I loved all my father's friends. And you know how it is when you're a kid in a very close-knit community. You tend to love the people like they're your own. You know, we all grew up so closely together. There was never a bad word between him and my father, man. He's sitting there shrunken up in the chair in my living room where he had lost everything. And he looks up at me, still smoking a cigar, and he was shrunken in the chair. And he looks up at me in his eyes and he says, Michael, Michael, look what happened to me. Look what happened to me. And his eyes were like wandering left and right. He didn't understand what happened to him. And he said, I'd rather I have cancer than what God did to me. And Lo and behold, lo and behold, I soon left New York. I went back to do what I did, which is collecting plants. And I heard that two years later, he died from one of the most rapidly uh, invasive forms of brain cancer. Be careful what you say. God hears the truth, but waits. Savage. The Savage Nation. It's Savage on Demand. Did I tell you about Louis? Yeah, I told you the story about Louis who bit, uh, got bitten by the monkey. That's boring. You heard it already. Told you about Louie, how to bend the nail. Did I tell you how to bend nails, how Louie taught me how to bend nails? I didn't tell you that story. Louie was an alcoholic who clean bronzes down in the basement there at my father's store. And, of course, I did it once in a while because my father needed another, you know, servant that he could get for nothing. My father had a simple theory. Since he was providing me with room and board, I had to work for him for nothing. What are you going to do? Go out with your friends? What do you think you are, an American? What are they gonna get over on me? So I have to go down in the basement and clean the bronzes. You know, a nice little upbringing. So down there was an alcoholic from the Bowery. That when he was not on a bender, my father gave him like a dollar an hour or something, also to clean the bronzes. I got to like this alcoholic. He was a nice guy, because when he was sober, he was an intelligent, sensitive guy. So over the years, Louis became a friend of mine. I confided in him a little. He was one of those like bimmies that I don't know if they still exist. That type you don't see them around. That very heavy drinking, quiet alcoholic, real skinny. There was certain kind of cheap white shirts that they would wear. They always had a cigarette dangling out of the right side of their mouth. It's a lost type. And um, very, very uh, rangy type of guy, you know. Not emaciated. And they were strong, too. They can, If you would think that they were weak because they looked, they weren't. They were strong as nails, these guys. So anyway... Once in my entire life, my dad drove him to our house and he ate dinner with us. After dinner, I sat around a dining table with Louie, the alcoholic, and learned a few tricks, like how to bend nails with my bare hands. Now, remember this. Here I was, a skinny 12-year-old kid, and here was this long-haired, sallow-faced, sort of vagrant alcoholic teaching me how to use mind over matter. And he used to say to me, you see, Michael, here's how you do it. You take that long nail and you put it between your hands. You put both thumbs up against the center point of the nail, And with your other fingers, you pull down towards you. Now concentrate, he said to me, on the center of that nail. Don't break your concentration, he said. Push those thumbs straight at that center point of the nail and never for one millisecond lose your focus. He said you'll soon feel the nail heating up right at the center point where you're concentrating and applying the pressure. This means the molecules in the nail are starting to move because of the pressure you're applying. That's the point at which you drive forward with your thumb and pull down with your hands a little more forcefully, he said. At that point, the nail will begin to bend. And listen, because it's tied to how we're going to beat the liberals. They're like a nail that you think you can't bend. But listen to this. Let me tell you something. It was truly amazing for me to learn how to bend nails with my bare hands from a man like Louis. He wasn't particularly strong. He wasn't exceptionally gifted. But he knew the secret of inner power. And if I could learn how to bend nails, anyone could. Likewise, while it appears the ACLU, the National Lawyers Guild and other extremist liberal groups are hard as nails and unable to be bent. If all of us freedom and justice-loving Americans were to unite our energies and apply the proper pressures, I'm sure we could bend them like a two-penny nail. There was a book in the 1970s called The Teachings of Don Juan that many listeners who are of the liberal, ex-liberal persuasion would have read. I wouldn't think that any conservative, over, uh, young conservatives know that book. It's not that important. In the 70s, though, it was an interesting book. And it's about a um, a guy who goes into the uh, uh, areas of Mexico, and he meets an old uh, healer, a Mexican folk healer, by the name uh, Ayaki Indian who the author Castaneda was first introduced to at a bus stop in Yuma, Arizona. And so in the early 60s, he tells the story about uh, Don Juan and what the story is about. But it was a big book about peyote, which I've never used, psychedelic mushrooms, datura and peyote, found in the Mexican deserts, which were allegedly used to reach states of non-ordinary reality in the teachings he conveyed to Carlos. When he goes into that other world, that dream world, he learns from this curandero, that people from the third world, especially primitive people from the third world, live with death all the time. We in the in the world that we live in push it away. We don't want to know about it. We use sports, entertainment, whatever. Perhaps it's a healthier way. Who knows? But it's inevitable. So I will ask you a question. Last night I watched The Sopranos' Burt Young dies. And his son, the actor, cries and says he was young. He was only 71 and Dory's 67. Then I watched another movie about a guy dying in his uh, 60s or whatever. And I start to try to not think about it. But me you all know, I have a, a a dream, a horrible dream, about that I'm laying there in a in, in some funeral parlor and they want to k- embalm me. And I <laughs> I jump up from the embalming and I say, No, 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 you can't do me. You can't cut me open. And I get, and I run out of the, uh, the the home. And I say, What a crazy dream that is. So I I said to myself, Why should I do the news? Everyone can do the news. And yet there's not a listener to my show, I don't care whether you're young, old, black, white, gay, straight, man, woman, boy, man, man, boy, girl, dog, any conscious being, any conscious being lives with this all the time. And I want to know from you, the audience, A, do you really live with this or is this considered too somber for you or is it too depressing for you? Do you run from this thought or do you live with the thought? Have you come to terms with the thought? The real question for the audience that would be of interest, I think, is how do you live with your thoughts about death and dying? What are your coping methods? What do you do when the thought of your end comes to you? That's what I'd like to know. I think that that's as important a topic as any because it's a topic that no one will talk about in America. And remember, this is a talk show. Talk radio is about talk, it's about topics. It's not only about politics. At least that's what I think. So if you care to join the conversation on that topic, you can. I'll get to the news momentarily. Now there, there are news stories. I mean, there's pretty good news out there, to be honest with you. But I'm not ready for it. I said to myself, I'm going to go and do a show the way I used to do it years ago when I first. Be- do you know when I first began a radio in the nineties? I'm going to tell you the truth. I did very little show prep on some days. Some days I would tune out of the news. I would take a ferry from Marin County, California into San Francisco, it would drop me at the ferry terminal, it it, it landed at 2.55 if I remember correctly, and my show started at 3.05, I'd run across the street to the KSFO studios and be on the air within a minute of the mic going hot, and I would do some of my most intuitively fun shows, best shows most entertaining shows insightful shows that the audience came to love but i want to open with this topic which is death and dying and i'd like to ask you what are your coping methods for this topic but i said to myself i can't be the only person in the in america who thinks about death and dying i have been thinking about death and dying since i'm about six i've always been focused on the next world which is probably probably one of the reasons i'm so productive in this world If you go back and look at my writings, going back to when I was a teenager just writing journals, I always knew, you know, that there's uh, the time, tick, 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 the clock, the whole thing, the dolly picture, the clock, the bent clock. Any artist is aware of the whole idea of death. What do you think motivates artists? What do you think drives artists but the sense of of time? It's all about time, and I'll take it to another level with you. I want you to go to any website that you go to for the news, whether, whether it's the Drudge Report Fox News, Savage.com, if you look at any security, and any story rather, it's all about your fear of death. Every story is about the human fear of death. But almost every story in the newspapers is about a fear of loss of freedom or a fear of loss of death in one way or the other. Whatever it is, look at it and analyze it. But I don't think it's morbid to talk about death and dying. It's part of the human experience, like talking about birth and living. I could talk about birth and living, but most of us are not that interested in birth and living. What we do is we run every day as fast as we can away from the topic that I am talking about. We run from it with alcohol. We run from it with marijuana. We run from it with cocaine. We run from it with virtually every drug on the planet. Man has been running from the fear of death since man has been on the planet. Uh, One of my graduate interests and degrees is a master's degree in anthropology, before I went on for another master's degree and then a PhD. I've always been interested in how other cultures view death and dying. And believe me, it's not the same as we view death and dying in this country. Most Americans walk around as though they're immortal. Most Americans talk as if they're immortal. Most Americans act as if they're immortal. And yet they know that they're not. Look at the women with the Botox and the surgery. Look at all of the surgery. What is that all about? What is all of this beautician, beauty treatment about? It's an attempt to control the aging process. And what about my obsession with food and vitamins? Well, obviously it's because I didn't want to die at 40. I didn't want to die at 50. I I wanted to make sure I could live as long as I could live uh, healthfully. Okay, so that's what that's about. It makes sense to try to keep yourself looking as well and feeling as well as you can. But the inevitable is there around the corner. So what do you do? Well, some turn to religion. What do you think theology is about? And what do you think prayer is about? Is prayer not about eternal life in another world? Whether you be a Christian or a Jew, don't you believe that that's what your prayer is about? Every prayer, if you read every prayer, it's about the next life. And if you're not a Christian, and you're not a Jew. If you're a Buddhist, is it not about reincarnation? Is it not about the many lives that you've lived and the many lives you will live? And about karma, how you act here is how you'll be placed there? So these are very big, big, big topics, and I think it's a, a fabulous topic. I think it goes outside the ken of the average talk radio show, which is where I want to go every day. What I have found in my anthropology years, living in third world places when they were really third world places, where there was no electricity, no television, no radios, in uh, villages with straw mats way back in the late 60s, collecting plants, medicinal plants. And I told a story once that I've had five or six near misses in my life. And nobody knows when the seventh one is coming or how many lives a cat has. But I remember in the Fiji Islands, I was coming back from a village where we had a Yangona ceremony all night. And something in me, everyone fell asleep, and I said to my guest, I have to leave, I have to leave, I have to leave. And he said, where are you going? It's in the middle of the night. I said, I have to go back to the main village. I don't know why. So he said, no, no, don't go, don't go, don't go. I said, no, I'm going to go. They said, well, look, we're not going to go with you. It's too late. It's too dark. I said, don't worry about me. I'll get myself back. So I walked back along the edge of a a ravine that fell to the sea about 300 feet below. I didn't know how much earth there was under my feet. But the next day, my guide, Dominico, came running to me. And he said, do you have any idea what you walked on at night? I said, no, I walked on the path along the edge of the bluff back to the main village. And he said, yes, but let me take you back there so you can see with your own eyes how close you came to falling to your death. And we walked back, and there was less than an inch of earth on that ridge between my foot and the the pounding sea below. I have no idea what drove me to walk back to the village, nor do I know whether there was an angel who put her hand underneath my foot. All I'm saying to you is that wasn't the first time. Uh, that something of that nature had occurred in my life. And I'm sure everyone listening to the show has experienced near misses and said, holy God, what was that about? You know, and you you change your life for a little bit after that. Once when I was nine years old playing with my cousin Sam in front of his house in Jamaica, Queens, I don't remember the street, a car hit me. We were playing ball in the street, back and forth, back and forth, and a car just banged into me on the side. He wasn't speeding, but it hit me. I got knocked down. I was dazed. To this day, I fantasize that I was actually killed that day, and all the rest of this is a dream. Can you imagine that this whole radio show is a dream and that you're not real? That I'm not real? That this is all imaginary? That's impossible. (laughs) But (laughs) I don't think I'm the only one who's had that experience and that kind of, let's say, transition to thinking, is this really a dream? Because we are spiritual creatures. And I don't want to get too preachy, but I, I will get mildly preachy. I think that when I talk about family values, when I talk about borders, language, and culture, do you understand what I'm saying to you, which is that without a soul, there is no nation? A nation has to be more than a nation simply of income, income distribution, taxation, taxes, money, business. That's all well and good. A nation needs that to be healthy economically. But, you know, as I said, Jesus wrote, What does it profit if the man who gaineth the world and loseth his soul? And America has lost its soul. That's what I've been trying to scream to you about. Just as a man can lose his soul, a nation can lose its soul. Savage. The Savage Nation. It's savage, uncut, unfiltered, and raw. A savage republic, inside the plot to destroy America, lays out the threats we face, prepare you for what's next, and offer solutions to save our republic. Please wake up and fight back before it is too late. You can buy it right now on Amazon or on BarnesandNoble.com. A Savage Republic, Inside the Plot to Destroy America by Michael Savage. Thank you for listening. Share it with five others. Now I have a special treat for you. It's a story that is made for families, and I want you to gather your children around the radio tonight on the Savage Nation. This story is extremely popular on this show. It's called The Jar. Listen. A professor stood before his philosophy class and had some items in front of him. When the class began, he wordlessly picked up a very large and empty mayonnaise jar and proceeded to fill it with golf balls. He then asked the students if the jar was full. The students said it was full. The professor then picked up a box of pebbles and poured them into the jar. He shook the jar lightly. The pebbles rolled into the open areas between the golf balls. He then asked the students again if the jar was full. They agreed it was. The professor then picked up a box of sand and poured it into the jar. Of course, the sand filled up everything else. He asked once more if the jar was full. The students responded with a unanimous yes. The professor then produced two beers from under the table and poured the entire contents into the jar, effectively filling the empty space between the sand. The students laughed. Now, said the professor, as the laughter subsided, I want you to recognize that this jar represents your life. The golf balls are the important things, your family, your children, your health, your friends, and your favorite passions. And if everything else was lost and only they remained, your life would still be full. The pebbles are the other things that matter, like your job, your house and your car. The sand is everything else, the small stuff. If you put the sand into the jar first, he continued, there is no room for the pebbles or the golf balls. The same goes for life. If you spend all your time and energy on the small stuff, you will never have room for the things that are important to you. Pay attention to the things that are critical to your happiness. Spend time with your children. Spend time with your parents. Visit with grandparents. Take your spouse out to dinner. Play another 18. There will always be time to clean the house and mow the lawn. Take care of the golf balls first. The things that really matter. Set your priorities. The rest is just sand. One of the students raised their hand and inquired what the beer represented. The professor smiled and said, I'm glad you asked. The beer just shows you that no matter how full your life may seem, there's always room for a couple of beers with a friend. I think it's beautiful. It's that simple. And, of course, it does put things in perspective as far as I am concerned, which is what I try to do on this show in my own way every day on The Savage Nation. And now, boys and girls on The Savage Nation, I want to play a story from my book, Train Tracks, Family Stories for the Holidays, which is perfect for this time of year. And I think I'm going to pick out of nowhere about a Hagira from New York, chapter 12. It's one page long in train tracks about my first bus ride to Miami when I was a youngster. When I went to Miami for a vacation, I'll start it from train tracks. Okay. My first Hagira from New York was a bus ride to Miami. The dining highlights, I recall, were the chicken bones and a greasy bag thrown under the seat by an old lady going to her retirement, and chicken again, this time the southern fried variety, at a bus rest stop in the middle of an Atlanta winter night. I'd always loved fried chicken as a boy, and this was really going to be a treat, to gorge on greasy chicken thighs and breasts in the heart of Dixie, where I had heard they had first perfected the recipe. The only factor limiting my enthusiasm was the time I was asleep like Ratso Rizzo, Dustin Hoffman's grizzled drifter in Midnight Cowboy, on his death ride, sweaty and in a fit of sorts, when the jouncing greyhound abruptly stopped, the lights were flashed on. Rest stop! everybody out, shouted the bus driver. And he came down the aisle prodding each and every one of us, even the old chicken bone lady, reminding me of the cartoon cop of the past. Maybe he got a kickback from the rest stop owner. I don't know. But everyone on that bus was hounded into that eatery in the middle of the night. The doors to our bus locked. There was no escaping it. I would have Southern fried chicken, even though I was slightly nauseous, beneath that 3 a.m. Georgia night sky with stars as sharp as fractured mollusks in a barrel. It was okay, that's all. Too crusty, too greasy. Of course, today I know it was probably cooked in lard and that the saturated fat would account for my early death had I kept on with my dietary ignorance. But the slight case of indigestion I nursed all the way to Jacksonville gave me that slight something to think about, which oh so softly pushed me into the arms of Morpheus. That's a tiny little story in Train Tracks. In going through photographs for the book Train Tracks, I found pictures of many of the men that I write about. The gambler, the leather man, the uncle who was a Democratic Party operative. What strikes me is that they were all very ordinary looking men. You would never pick them out of a crowd and think that they were anything special. And that's just the point of this book, which is that in the ordinary, there is the extraordinary. Now, whether it is that men were more dynamic in those days or that I saw the dynamism in their lives is for anyone to guess. I don't know. Are men still like that? There is a movie called The Naked City where it is said, quote, there are eight million stories of The Naked City. This has been one of them. I was fascinated by that as a young boy because it showed me that every individual person walking the streets had a story. If only you could find that story. And all of my life, I found this to be true. That of course every human in their destiny, in their journey through life is actually weaving a story. It's just that most of us don't even realize we are unique or weaving a story. Or is it that the times have made so many of us homogenous? Have we become just one massive group of individuals in a sort of socialist hive? Well, whatever the case may be, Train Tracks contains the stories of ordinary men and women, each of whom was extraordinary. Now, I haven't read that since I wrote it. And I got to tell you, I want to read the book. The, the book rings true. And I, I almost hit the mark here in what I was trying to do. And as Hemingway said, if it, if it's, if it rings, there's a, certain, there's a certain ring to the truth that everyone recognizes when they hear it, and there's no way to describe it. That's, that's what I want to say. Shall I go on? Shall I go on or not? I, mean, I need to hear. I mean, you know, Buddy needs to hear what you want me to do. I'll tell you what I'm going to read. Nightclub. Because it's got drama. I'll skip ahead to story six in Train Tracks. Okay. <clears throat> Clear the floor, everybody. This is a closed set, everyone out of the uh, studio. Nightclub from Train Tracks. The bar was dark like a scene out of The Godfather. We sat next to the long, dark mahogany bar at a small table. The steak was served. I had never eaten steak that was this soft. In fact, I didn't know the steak was supposed to be soft. The only steaks I had ever eaten before were hard, rubbery, difficult to cut. This one cut like butter. The tough man served us without a smile. We were the only ones in there on a Saturday afternoon. It was on the Upper East Side of Manhattan in what was known as Yorktown, a German neighborhood. It was owned by my friend's father, Jackie Hart, who was the toughest guy in the neighborhood. He was a professional gambler and a club owner long before anyone knew what that meant. All the other men were either small businessmen with tiny little stores, or they worked in the trades or in the garment center. Jackie was a guy out of the Godfather. He was quiet, he hardly ever spoke. Everyone respected him and everyone feared him. We had gotten downtown not by train tracks, but one of the hard men from the bar had come to get us by car to eat in Jackie's bar. There are many stories about Jackie. This was one of them. The one about the soft steak served by the hard man. Another story about Jackie that comes to mind occurred around the same period when I was seven, eight, nine years old in the Catskill Mountains where most of the families from our apartment building retreated to what were known as bungalow colonies. In essence, small villages that were rented for the summer. Each family rented a small cottage. This was Paradise Lost. One summer, my family, Jackie's family, probably 10 others, all rented individual cottages or bungalows at the same place. It was on a long, sloping, grassy hill with a swimming pool. This summer, a huge fight had broken out between the owners of the bungalow colony and this group from the Bronx. It was very unusual for these men to engage in a fight, but fight they did. It started over an insult thrown at one of our neighboring women by the owner in the little grocery store that belonged to and was run by the bungalow colony owner. Who knows what it was over? But it was a huge fight that went on for most of the day, and it ended up with Fat Pat the bookie dragging one of the brothers around the property by his collar, pulling him until he gave up, but he wouldn't give up. Fat Pat kept pulling him around, telling him, it's time you gave up, but the guy wouldn't give up. Jackie Hart, on the other hand, got into a fist fight with one of them and bashed the guy's head in. The guy bit him in the forearm, and as you may know, human bites are far more deadly than dog bites. It took him months for that wound to heal. Jackie was a street fighter long before he was a bar owner growing up in the Yorktown area of New York. He told a story years later to us young kids about the period during World War II when there was an actual Nazi party in New York City and other places sympathetic to Hitler. Jackie was on a subway car when one of the American Nazis jumped up and started to scream, Kill the Jews! Kill the Jews! Kill the Jews! Jackie was not a man given to words. He didn't react with words. He said he waited until a subway car stopped at a train station. He grabbed the, the Nazi and smashed his head between the car and the platform until he was a bloody pulp. And then he left without a word. That was Jackie Hart. There was a fight he talked about. Oh, my God, I'm running overboard here. I, I, I'm getting into it. Okay, this is all from my book, Train Tracks. I'll be right back. Savage. Home of borders. Language. Culture. The Savage Savage Nation. I really like talking about heaven, and you know where, the other place, and how all of us uh, dream of this heaven, and it goes back to the ancient worlds, Greek, Roman, Celts, Teutons. Everybody believes of this wondrous world and these paradises, these paradises that we all want, the new Jerusalem. We all want the new Jerusalem, don't we? Don't we all want the new Jerusalem? You find them in the literature of Hinduism, Buddhism, Buddhism. Islam and why what are they all looking for and by the way that was classical Islam before it was distorted by Wahhabi Islam what we're facing now is the curse of Wahhabism which is a new form of Islam the most virulent form ever invented because there was a time that Islam was relatively peaceful was not always like this there were times in history when Islam got along with its neighbors but not anymore. Not anymore. So man constantly seeks heaven. Man constantly tries to create heaven, whether it's in his own house, car. Let's say you buy a car. I'm going to talk about heaven and you know where, the other place, for a few minutes. I have to do this for a while, only because I want to. I realize it's out of the ken of talk radio. After all, we're just knuckle-dragging uh, right-wing conservatives. We don't know anything about Literature, Nothing about religion, nothing about history. No, no, that's only known by Thomas Friedman, the stooge of the New York Times. They're the literate ones. Only liberals are the literate ones. Why, those of us on the other side of the aisle can have no education whatsoever, no knowledge whatsoever. They're the knowledgeable ones. So I will then, in my own way, try to explain to you what what I'm talking about and where I'm coming from here on The Savage Nation. Let's start with the simple. I'm a champion for America's borders, language, and culture. The savage nation, Michael Savage, borders, language, culture. Does that immediately exclude me from the paradise the liberals have created for themselves? Well, I would hope not, since every nation through history has been defined by a border, by its common language and by its culture, but not in America. We bomb others to preserve their borders, their language and their culture. But we erase our borders and bastardize our language and decimate and spit upon our own culture. How is that possible? Well, it's an example of what happens when a nation has an autoimmune disease. I've explained this to you before. I've done it many times for many years. Remember, I'm the master chess player of ideas on the radio, whether you know it or not. I realize my accent sounds like that of a truck driver from from uh, Brooklyn. doesn't matter. If you can get past your own bias and prejudice, you may realize that some truck drivers are smart. Some of them know more than you do, even though you may have a degree in something or other. And I gave a little talk off the Hudson River in New York. So let's listen to it now, please. Is there anyone down below who should be up here that we can browbeat for a few minutes? (laughs) A hundred years ago, my grandfather arrived at Ellis Island in Steerage. Many of you have a similar story. Maybe it was more more than a hundred years ago for you. I'm I'm a first-generation American, so... I have one foot in the old world and one foot in the new world. So when I talk about immigration, I sort of know what I'm talking about. So last night we went to dinner in Shunley with my agent Ian. Come back, didn't say a word in the cab. They're getting out, I'm paying the guy or whatever. <clears throat> he says, are you Michael Savage? He was a Haitian immigrant. Are you Michael Savage? <laughs> he said, I'm like your grandfather. I'd rather have my arm cut off than take welfare. See, people don't understand how diverse diversity really is. They assume that it's fractured in this country, that blacks think one way, Hispanics think another way, whites think another way. But we have all these divisions within my grandfather, Sam, who I call the astronaut of my family. It was as though he went to the moon. Look where he came, didn't speak a word of English, came here seven years out of the family. Blah, 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 earned money as a little tailor, sent it home, brought my grandmother, brought my father and died at a very young age, 47, heart attack, you know, that's how they work so hard, whatever. Now, then my father died at 57, never really made it big in the country, had a little store, what, 12 blocks from here on Ludlow Street, an antique store, and I wrote about it uh, in train tracks, it was all in that book, owns this yacht, and I'm not here to boast, I'm just here to say it's the American dream. We have lived the American dream through extreme hard work. People don't know he works 24-7. My wife works 24-7, I shouldn't say it. Companies don't run themselves, as you know. Someone's running those companies. If salesmen aren't producing, they're fired, right? But anyway, the point is, we're living the dream. But what my grandfather fled, and his great-grandfather fled, was communism, Bolshevism, revolution. What do we have in America today? We have $27 million apartments on Jane Street. I took a bicycle ride today. I saw a building, it was a former uh, nursing home, the painter told me. Red brick building looked like a school. So I said, how much do these cost? Are they condos? He said, no, man, they're for billionaires. How much are they? He said, $25 million for these two floors, and they're putting $5 million into it. I said, what? He said, yes, that's what they're putting into this building this is what's going on we have two societies right three maybe high low god knows where the middle class is going to end up but we have people who would like to stop that we have people who would like to end it we like people who like to take it away turn the city back turn the country back and the answer is somewhere in the middle isn't it isn't it somewhere in the middle where everyone can dip their beaks as the godfather said everyone can feed a little bit in our country But we don't want Bolshevism, we don't want Communism, do we? But we have the same forces that operated in Russia are now operating in the West and that's what we have to be cognizant of and that's what my show is about. It's not the extreme element of screw the poor, let them eat cake, let them eat peanuts. The issue is don't take from those who have worked so hard, don't steal it from them because without them there'd be nothing. We'd have one salami in the butcher store like they had in the Soviet Union. Remember what Russia was like when you were a kid? Many of you were over 50. Remember the images of the Soviet Union? People lining up around the block? One salami in the butcher store. Why? Why would the butcher invest in a piece of meat? Why would the farmer raise the cows if he couldn't sell it and make a profit? People don't even understand what the profit motive is. It's not all evil. It's become a dirty word, right? Hasn't capitalism become a dirty word? Is it a dirty word? The whole world runs on that. So what I'm saying is, Thank God we have a capitalist system. It's not evil. It's good, and I'm glad we're here. I'm not going to get to the gecko thing of greed is good. I'm not going. <laughs> I didn't go there. All I said was capitalism is good, investment is good, business is good, sales are good. sales are very good, ratings are even better. And I want to thank you all for taking time out on a sweaty August day. It was a last minute thing. My son's boat was in Fort Lauderdale, and I conclude with this, and we're supposed to go on a father and son vacation. We've never done it. We're both afraid of each other. We're both too hard-headed to spend any time in a tent, hunting moose, fishing. We don't like killing things. We like eating them, but not killing them. So we were going to go to Alaska, then we were going to go to Canada. Then we said, what the hell are we going to do in Alaska? (laughs) Well, you can look at the hookers without teeth in the bar. What the hell?
1: (laughs) What are we going to do in Canada?
0: Well, there's always the Royal Canadian Mounted Police. I mean, I don't know. So he said, Dad, let me send the boat up to New York. I said, okay, that was last week. Thank you very much for being here. Thank you. And that's the personable Michael Savage with three drinks uh, under his sails. It was a hot... it was a hot August night, and the wine was very good, and the crowd was very nice, and it was a little different than radio. You can hear it. But it's a true story. It's an immigrant son, and it shows up with mobility. Now you could say, oh, the decks were stuck because you're a white guy. Hey, everyone opened the skids up for you. Well, it wouldn't be true if you thought that. It'd be true that you're thinking it, but it wouldn't be true because that's not what happened. I was blocked every step of the way. Whatever I did, I had to fight for. I had to fight for everything I ever did. And then, after I got my doctorate from a great university, I was told white men need not apply, so don't tell me the greases were, the skids were greased for me. Savage. Well, thank you very much for listening to today's podcast. I hope you've enjoyed it and you'll learn something from it. We have about 400 other episodes available for you to listen to absolutely free. You can go back into our vast library of podcasts and listen to any one of them at any time. And remember this, if you want to listen to my podcast ad-free, sign up for the Savage Premium Membership and get access to ad-free podcasts as well as some premium content from our Savage archives. How do you sign up for those ad-free podcasts? Please visit michaelsavage.com for a link. Again, thank you for your listenership. This is Michael Savage.